Kitty Cats, welcome back. We are back. This is Text of the Matter. Hey guys, it's Misha. I'm Egon, um, and uh, this is episode two. We're um, going straight back into Immanuel Kant and his critique of pure reason. Uh, this time we're dealing with the transcendental analytic. Yeah, and and that's that's a hard concept. What what really could a transcendental analytic mean, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful, right? Yeah. <laughs> a critique of pure reason? What's this? Oh, just some book. It's pretty cool. The possibility of apodictic. Apodictic principles? What's that? Well, I mean, he's using the word oddly here because he wants to prove an a priori body of synthetic knowledge is exhibited in the general doctrine of motion. Because he wants to prove I, an a priori you mean, takes it as a given that universality and necessity can't be reached by empirical processes. That the a priori is not... It's really important that we go back. I think uh, so. I think so. It, yeah. Well, and that said, if this is your first time with us, uh, perhaps it's time for you to go back. Um, <laughs> our last episode, episode one, as well as our supplemental episode on Immanuel Kant's categories um, are pretty fundamental, I would say, for this episode. Uh, at the beginning of the Critique of Pure Reason, he basically sets out the foundation for his um, for his epistemology and kind of defines a lot of the terms we'll be using, which we'll obviously go over as we're doing this episode. As we're hitting it. But there's an accruing quality to Kant where he is layering concept upon concept, rule upon rule, and he's really making, as he as we referenced in the first episode, a sort of architectonic structure, right? Yes. So the transcendental analytic, you know, it has a specific meaning. Um, what we were getting at early on was the the transcendental is part of what he calls the synthetic a priori, right? It's a specific uh, way in which we apprehend concepts immediately, and uh, that there are certain formal qualities, time, space, sense, that are immediate. And analytic is when we uh, go into a concept and analyze that concept, you know, internally, right. rather than uh, what would be synthetic, which is we take in sense, we take in time, we take in space, as a phenomenon, as an image, and produce something that is new. So. Right, and and transcendental analytic is very Kantian in this sense because in some ways it is almost contradictory yeah. or, or we might even say problematic where um, obviously transcendental, you know, root word transcendent, um, what Kant is doing uh, he's not trying to write a scientific thesis. He's interested in the metaphysics of... Um, thinking and perception. And so his eventual aim is these more transcendent concepts and ideas. Um, and while he is unsure if these are actually possible for us to engage in, uh, his aim of setting up this system of thought is trying to test those limits and find those boundaries. And so um, in looking at the transcendental, he's taking an analytic um uh, methodology to it. And so analytic is, like you're saying, this internal thing where, um, as we discussed in our supplemental episode on the categories, 
uh, analytic is seeing what is inside of a concept. So what is uh, self-evident in the concept itself. So for instance, um, all unmarried men are bachelors. You know, from bachelor, unmarried man is part of that concept. Yes, it is assumed. Um, And it it, it will be important to just like, very quickly, we can uh, flash through the categories and the judgments, just listing them off, even listing one of the tables. Sure, you're um, just to catch us up. Yeah. Uh, um, because basically what he's doing here is he's trying to take what he's set up, which is the table of judgments and the table of categories and his idea of a priori synthetic judgments and laying them out in a scheme, in a schematic uh, to try and elucidate how they're all operating together. Exactly. And I, I have, like, the categories right yeah, in front of me. So Lay them on me, baby. Like, he has uh, the table of categories. One, of quantity, which lists unity, plurality, totality. Two, of quality, uh, reality, negation, limitation. Three, of relation, of inherence and subsistence, of causality and dependence, of community, and then modality, possibility and possibility, existence, non-existence, necessity, contingency. So there's a lot of complex words in there that we went over in that episode, but what is important is that here, now he is going inside of these concepts and he's showing you how they function. And then all of the kind of conceptual relationships, rules, principles, postulates, if you want an interesting word, that he uh, finds necessary to their functioning in our consciousness. Exactly, exactly. And so um, he begins this section of the book with uh, his the first chapter is on the schema, schematization, so <laughs> on the schematization of the pure concepts of understanding. God damn you, Kai. And yeah, he's got a lot of words that are hard to say. Um, but to, to kind of bring us, you know, into this room, into the, into our, uh, to settle in into our, the conversation we're about to have, I wanted to highlight this quote because it's Kant at uh, his most flowery. And I yeah. always, I always like picking up on these moments because you can tell he's, he's operating outside of his just logical formula. But yeah. he introduces the schematization by saying, the schematism regarding appearances, so the, the, stimuli we're taking in as intuitions and their mere form is a secret art residing in the depths of the human soul an art whose true stratagems we shall hardly ever divine from nature and lay before ourselves i noticed this as well and i'm really (laughs) glad you pulled out this quote but he you know it's one of these rare moments where he indulges prose whereas normally there's a sort of indifference uh, taking on of a scientific position a coldness right yeah um, but here he's he's locating that the 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 way that all of his concepts are organized is and and operates. I, I shouldn't say it's in their organization, but in the way they operate, he calls a secret art. And the secret art that he's referring to, of course, is our perception. It's how we make sense of where we are, what we're doing, and how we're interacting in the world. Yeah. So, so, so you can you can imagine a, a basic kind of functioning, right? Like we have a category, as he listed them, and yes. these categories are a priori; they are immediate. But at the same time, we have intuition. We sense. We have this external world, and we see all of these things around us. And what the schema 
as he's describing there, the secret function, this immediate function, relates these two things together, right? You have your category on the one hand that takes what it is that you see or that you perceive, because it includes all of the senses, and it relates it specifically to one of those categories. So um, as we saw, you know, something that, that is plural, right? Mm-hmm. It might be multiple different phen- phenomena or images mm-hmm. that would be categorized, schematized into a specific category by this function, by this deep function. Um, but right. yeah, that's, that's, the, the, that's essentially the way that he is trying to define the schema. Right. And, and because, you know, to sort of place Kant in his, you know, milieu or whatever, um, you know, he, he's very interested in the marriage between empirical thought, which is, you know, the, what we see and, and experience, and rational thought in, in this kind of uh, critical thinking, this rational thought. And, he, and he's very curious in how these two are operating together. He is not of the mind like a lot of his contemporaries that it is one or the other, but these two things are actually dependent on one another. Yeah. Um, now, his schema, his map for uh, relating his concepts... Uh, produced by the categories to objects, to the things we experience and see, um, is, he says, requires a mediating presentation that is pure both intellectually and sensible. So, again, this marriage between rational thought and empiricism. And for him, this presentation is time. Time, yes. That's exactly what I was going to point out. Yes. The scheme is a relation of time. It relates possible experiences to a concept, right? And this is something that he is he he repeatedly tries to define, right? That we necessarily have this kind of internal function that uh, takes what is perceived as externally and takes it within us into our internal sense, right? And that that internal sense is temporality or t- is time mm-hmm. and so this the schema is this necessary function that we have to take what is outside and make it internal right and by making it internal then making it open to conceptualization because now it it, it is part of us as a subject um and and it, it, there's kind of a, a complex series that he presents with the schema you start with imagination, you produce an image, uh, that image becomes a sensuous concept, that sensuous concept is schematized, um, it, then it becomes a transcendental category, um, and as a unified category, it is sort of taken in by our apperception, which is another concept we talked about in the first episode. Right, exactly. So, you, you know, basically what we're saying is the way that Kant's scheme of how we are able to experience uh, is this, uh, it's mediated by time, which he, he calls our inner sense. And so, as you might remember from last time, our two most fundamental a priori um, intuitions are space and time. And space is our outer sense. It is, it is the space between us. It is the space we navigate. Uh, and, but that is all mediated through time. And so we understand space through... Uh, it's seriality through a progression of events. Um, and by taking in these intuitions of our outer sense through time, 
the imagination then takes it up. Uh, you know, he says uh, somewhere early on here, if if I am to uh, talk about a line, I first must imagine it. I must imagine myself drawing it, that there's always this act of reproduction whenever we're talking about concepts, whenever we're even just doing plain thinking or, or making small actions. Our mind is, in a sense, reproducing the things that we are experiencing in a way that we can intuit them and understand them. Um, and it's maybe a better way, he, he always calls it reproduction, but I like to think of it as a translation. Yes, as a translation, as a, as a memory. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's multiple senses in which I imagine reproduction. Um, but yeah, no, certainly it is that we have an active kind of function where we see what is outside and we take it in. And then there's an internal function that produces sense for us as well, right? And that is really where reproduction comes into. If we do not have this active way of experiencing the world, then we have something internal that reproduces the world that we have already experienced, right? And that, again, drives what he means by the internal sense, by this being defined by time. Right. And it's important the kind of uh, movement that he makes from the schema to the internal sense. Right. Because the internal sense or what he calls um, an intensive magnitude, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. which which he uh, differentiates from an extensive magnitude is the way that we uh, appreciate the way that we understand quantity. Right. So this is an important basic thing that we start out with. Um, And quantity, he means as a a simple number, right? That we always uh, understand external objects to a certain degree, right? To a a certain number. Um, And that, you know, we will have one, two, three of something externally. But when we experience that internally, we do not experience it separately, but we experience it all at once, right? That the intensive magnitude, our sense goes to a degree, and that degree is related to a possible, a pure transcendental concept of zero, right? And this is one of the most complex ideas, I think, that's in his, in this section and in mm-hmm. the book at all. Yeah, right? buckle up, guys. This is like the, the meat of the... And not the potatoes here. Yeah. Um, And yeah, exactly. And so basically he's saying that through time and he says that um, through a series of rules um, that we deal with our perceptions through time series, time order, and through time sum total, which leads us to these table of principles. As you can tell by now, he loves his tables. Um, But that are basically divided into to four parts. He has axioms of intuitions, which is the extensive magnitudes we yes. were talking about. And by extensive magnitudes, he's talking about um, how we can cognize something through successive synthesis. So um, of a part to another part in our apprehension, that we are able to take things um, in pieces but understand that they are a whole. An example he gives, for instance, is taking in a house right exactly that you could start from seeing the door and then seeing the awning and the window or you can start the opposite way but we have a means of taking this external image and turning that into a phenomenon 
and a phenomenon is something that has meaning for us, right? That we conceptualize and that we categorize, right? Right, right. And so then he also has the intensive side of this, which is um, a little different, and it has more to do with sensations. And this is the degree that that you were uh, had just brought up. Yes, and this and, idea of zero. And and, and I, I want to draw you know, extreme attention to it because mm-hmm. it becomes extremely important in philosophers going forward that we're going to look at. But um, it's also an extremely fascinating idea because what he says is that affirmatively, right, um, and that is, of course, one of his, one of his categories, um, affirmatively, we experience sense to a certain intensity, right? So if you experience heat, you experience it to a certain degree of heat um, that could go up to infinity. But because that heat can disappear, right, or uh, uh, because it can, another sense can begin, it is always related to zero. But as we sense, because we are sensing numerous different phenomena, we never actually experience that zero, right. that degree zero. So we have this concept of the negative, of an absence of sense, right, internally, but because of the way that sense is experienced in time, we always have some sense. There is always like this surface, this flow of senses that we take in subjectively. And therefore, this degree zero isn't something that we can actually experience. But nonetheless, we have to think of it in that relationship because we have to, because without it there would be no appearance and absence of things there would be no way for us to separate one thing from another in a time serially creating a point a to a point b right, right? or a point b to a point a and yes. and and so with these two um, thoughts i think what's important to recognize is the um, he calls them extensive uh, versus the intensive so extensive you know, that was the idea of the house. That's something outside of us. Yes. It's external. And the in- intensive is something internal. It's, you know, when he talks about sensations, he uses heat as an example. Heat is something you feel inside yourself. When I see a house, I don't feel the house inside of myself. Yeah. And so he's trying to make this distinction here that um, we have certain principles of how we are taking in the world. And sometimes... It's an external way where we're, 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 we are able to identify, say, a band playing. And I can see that there's um, four people on a stage and I know they're all a band. And it doesn't matter if I start with the drummer or start with the lead singer or whatever. I understand that they're a band. Um, but th- there's also the sensations that when they start playing, it's very loud. And I, it, it, it's actually engaging with my internal understanding. So uh, I can feel the bass, right? And um, to our everyday uh, existence, you know, I can say, oh, there was no sound and now there's sound and I can feel it in my chest. Yes. Um, but where in actuality there is always sound, it, it's just not triggering my, um, my intuition in such a way where I'm registering it as, uh, you know, uh, resonating in my body. Yes. And, 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 and there's a reason why he's using extensive and intensive rather than internal and external, right? Because intensive, it doesn't just mean it's inside of me. It means it's inside of me to a certain extent. Yes. To a yes. power. 
and extensive. To a degree. Does, yeah. Yes, to a degree. <laughs> and extensive it doesn't just mean it's outside of me, but that it's outside of me and it takes up a certain range of space, yes. right? So that he, there's a way that he integrates both the concepts of these a priori uh, aesthetic conditions as they are time and space and integrates them into what it is, uh, the, the faculties that we are using and how they process the concepts. Right. So, and so these first two uh, principles of pure understanding um, – which pure understanding is how we are able to experience the world. He calls them mathematical. So these, you know, we're talking about uh, duration, we're talking about intensity, um, but then there's another side of his table um, that he calls dynamic. And so these are, he calls them the analogy of experience, and um, he eventually brings some postulates uh, of empirical thought. Um, but... So we have these really kind of like mathematical, mechanistic ways that he's looking at how we are able to experience, how we are able to understand experience, I guess. Yes, they're, they're, they're immediately functional right. and there, there is no mediate. That's a, a big thing that defines the dynamic for him, which mm -hmm. is that it is mediated by something. It indirectly affects a concept. Whereas the mathematical, it, it is immediately affecting or affecting the, the concept. Mm -hmm. um, and so he says, basically, he writes that, um, that, that these principles are, are basically given through three modes of time. And these he calls the analogies of experience. And so he's using this uh, grammatical tool to try and describe how we experience the world. And he says we do this through permanence which is um, not in the sense of something lasting forever, but that, you know, I may know Misha for 90 years and I will always know him as Misha, e even if he's an old man or it has a broken yeah. leg or something like that, um, through succession, which is kind of a serial way of looking at time, and through simultaneity, that um, we, we exist in the same moment of time altogether and not, uh, you know that somehow time is separate from each other when I'm talking to you versus talking to someone else. Yes. Right? And, and there's something very fascinating about the way that he uses these because there is an intention in the way that he uses these concepts because they are to describe one larger concept, which is cause and effect. Right, right. right. It, and in the way that he describes permanence, it is both as you described, like I will be the same person conceptually to you, despite all these transformations, but also that there is a permanence to the fact that we will be sensing from life to death. Now, interestingly, that's what he doesn't include. The subject is just its sense. There is no before or after mm -hmm, that, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and that, that will be something important to note as we go on. But that these are basically the, the kind of modal relationships that time and sensibility can always have within us internally. And that this is the way that we can understand how things relate to each other causally. You know, um, that they succeed each other, that they coexist with each other. Yeah. And like a kind of a great way of describing that, that just occurred to me because right, like Kant is in this time where he's like contending metaphysically with the fact that Newton has just like broken the world. He's like, oh, I've discovered gravity. I'm like figuring out how light works and everyone's mind is kind of blown. 
Um, but in the same way, you can think of permanence as in like water, right? Like water has three states. It has, you know, it can be a vapor, it can be a liquid, it can be ice, it can be a solid. And we recognize it all as water, yes. you know? And so this is what he's referring to basically is that um, we have this um, mode of intuition that we can recognize that even though something state is changing, that it itself is not. Fundamentally, and we can, and this is of course very important for cause and effect, right? That we can see the through line when something does undergo a change, that you know its origin and where it ends up is still the same object, uh, and so you can start making claims of cause and effect. Yeah, um, uh, and and really, what's interesting is that he is, despite the fact that something like Newtonian physics is being born, right? Um, we, at the same time, he's, we see him producing a entirely new, uh, description of cause and effect because, mm-hmm. you know, ostensibly the scientific form of cause and effect is delineating a single object and how it relates to another object, how that force expresses itself on the next object. Famously in Hume, who is one of his greatest objects of critique, <laughs> you know, um, there is the billiard ball example, yeah. and there is isolating all of these objects, right? But instead, he is and Hume, Hume, I should say, empiricist. He's he's not really sure that anything is real. Yeah, yeah. He he's willing to question all of the things that he knows as until they uh, do not like follow his em- empirical values, or rather, the opposite. A- everything that he knows empirically, he will trust, but he leaves it open that it could all possibly change. Like the sun could not rise one day. And if it did, then his empirical beliefs would have to then change as well. Totally. And, and, and Khan is, is agreeing with him in some ways. I mean, um, uh, what's the dude's name? Something Wolf wrote a whole book about it where he basically comes by some writings of Hume in a German translation uh, before writing this book. And he, he kind of has to give it to Hume. He's like, well, you know, he's right. Um, I, I, Kant obviously believes in cause and effect and wants to be able to prove it somehow, but he will concede that by empirical thought alone, yeah, it seems like the sun's going to rise every day, but, you know, scientifically we know now that, like, that's not going to be true all the time. Yeah. And so, like, in what way can we can we be confident about any cause and effect and and then that's what but that's what's so fascinating about what he does is because he he takes it away from exactly that mm-hmm. by setting up the transcendental that we're not that the standard is not the external world that cause and effect is out there in the real world while we have this mind that is experiencing potentially illusory things, right? And setting up a standard of the transcendental, he's able to say that the cause and effect relationship isn't between the billiard ball and the billiard ball, though it can be elaborated in that way as we conceptualize it. But it is more basically just an A-B relationship between what we're sensing and what we just sensed. Right, right. right. And or what we're sensing and what is beside it, right? And he comes up with all these new concepts and this new sensibility of what cause and effect means. It, it, it isn't uh, a relationship of 
like individual objects isolated out of the world, but it's rather the whole world in series, all of experience at least in series and how it relates to each other and how we can draw complexities and relationships from that. Yeah, and, and I think where he really breaks the mold is in this, in his third analogy of experience, which is uh, he calls simultaneity or community. And I think what's really novel here, and I think it really uh, you know, jumps off of the billiard ball example really well, um, is that things have a relation of influence. So um, it's not just you strike the cue ball, there's a cause and effect there, it hits the ball, exactly. and, and, you know, it can all be mapped out mathematically, but that in every action, in every object, that everything is interacting with each other simultaneously. That, yes. that, and so you could think about that as, you know, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. But in, in Kant takes it even farther than that. And he, he has this wonderful phrase that I really love. He calls it matter's reciprocal influence. Um, so that there is this, this community that it's existing where um, – and complicates cause and effect. It's not just there is a cause that leads to effect. So A uh, creates something in B, but simultane simultaneously B is also causing something in A. Yes. It, he gives a very simple example. He says, you can go into a room and you can feel the heat, and then you can look over and see the furnace. But the effect, the heat, and the cause are coexisting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that heat... Who knows? It could be causing some reaction and it could itself be a cause, right? So all of a sudden, if it's not just serial, as the scientific imagination would be have, have it, force A acts on object B, which creates force B, which acts on object C. Instead, you have all of these coexisting and layering objects that are all the only way that we can perceive them is through this internal sense, time. Right. And so th this, is, this is really kind of the image that he's trying to draw. Ooh. Everything is translated inside of us, as you said, in reproduction. And, and then through time, through that temporality, we're able to demarcate all of these different relationships that were heretofore impossible, right? right? That required this just innate sensibility. Yeah, and you know, like... When we started this, I never thought in a million years that this like conservative um, kind of socially frustrated old man, Immanuel Kant, would, would excite me the way that he does in these kinds of passages. Because, um, you know, what he's doing here, I think, is responding to sort of the Newtonian physics of the day. Um, but in that time... The, the sort of worldview is this mechanistic worldview that in, in some ways, we were talking about this earlier in the car that, um, you know, there was this idea that maybe God was a clockmaker. Yeah. He built this clock and wound it up, but now it's just running. And, and that, you know, we, you can sort of develop these Newtonian ideas of physics because it's essentially just reverse engineering a, a machine. Uh and, and, and one day, it, when the math gets good enough, we would be able to predict into the future everything that mm -hmm. would happen. And see God. Right? Yes. And that was the Leibnizian idea. Right. And, but Kant is saying he, he is sort of prefiguring what is to come, which at this sort of mechanism gets 
um, frustrated by the like or- organicism of Darwin and these ideas of evolution and that um, things don't change so, so predictably serially. Uh, and he's doing this by, you know, basically complicating the cause and effect relationship and saying, well, no, everything is interacting all of the time. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a simple A to B. It's, it's um, you know, on one hand, everything in this room is interacting with me and I am interacting with everything in the room. Yes. Um, you know, he has, he has this kind of interesting thing where he, he I'm just going to paraphrase rather than reading a dense quote, but, you know, where he says that, you know, the light bit be- playing between our eyes and the celestial bodies can bring about an indirect community between us and them and can thereby prove their simultaneity. And, you know, so we obviously know with, like, light speed and stuff that maybe the star isn't simultaneous with our existence, but that light is existing at the same time as we are. Yes. And if we can see it, then it's interacting with us, just as anyone who can see us, we are interacting with them. But this actually, what you just brought up brings up one of the greatest complications of and, and problematics of what he's talking about. Which we should problematize Kant because he's yeah, not yeah. a saint or anything, yes. you know. No, we, and it we, is, we don't critique necessarily, but we do and should, right? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not in this to tell you if Kant is good or bad. Right, or right? tell you if he's right or wrong. Right or who wrong. Knows? Yes, <laughs> but we can bring up these kind of questions about it. And, and, and there's two ways in which this goes, and we can co- talk about like Newtonian physics, right? Yeah. On the one hand, what you brought up, the star is causing well beyond the existence of human uh, human being, right? And we are still perceiving it, right? But it also works the opposite way, that we can work with a system of mathematics, right? And we can predict the behavior of that star way out there without ever actually seeing its function. And we can create a scientific axiom. And within this, within his system, because everything has to be based on uh, what is empirically verifiable and then it is available for our, our conceptual understanding, it's, it's questionable if it allows for the causal effect of something that is non-existent. You know, that star, he would say, oh, it is just the light. But it also was a star well before there was any consciousness to perceive it, right? Mm -hmm. And does he account for the reality of... Uh, of something before there was any human consciousness at all, and that, and I'm just leaving that as a point because we will get that later well, with well, a right. different concept. I was going to say you're actually like approaching, I think, to Kant what this is all really about. Yeah, and because he's trying to set the stage and really plant his flag in something that he can, in a, a place that he can make statements from that he can have confidence in that they have truth. Um, but in that demarcation, of course, you're, there is territory that, that is not so sure. Um, so Kant, you know, he stops short of saying, I've done it, I've figured it out. And he leaves us with these three postulates, these things that he goes through this whole tangent where he's comparing mathematical postulates and saying that he's trying to do that, that these things, he feels very confident about them, but he cannot prove them. So he's calling them postulates, which is something that he is... Um, you know, granting like a hypothesis. 
Um, but basically, in all of this work that he's doing on his on his uh, epistemology, is he is finding this to be true that what agrees with the formal conditions of experience is possible, right? So, uh, if something agrees with our a priori um, apperception that it, it can exist, right? A unicorn isn't real, but it can exist. Um, and then he takes it another step further. He says, what coheres with the material conditions is actual. So, you know, in a very reductionary way, um, there aren't unicorns, but there are horses. I can, I can make real statements about horses, even though I can conceive of a unicorn and I can make judgments about them. And he concludes by saying that whose coherence with the actual is determined according to universal conditions of experience is necessary. Um, and so at this point, he's trying to, to kind of tie a nice bow around this in saying that, you know, uh, our a priori understanding is the conditions of experience and is necessary for us to make any kind of true judgments about anything, even if they're just conceivable judgments, right? Exactly. And, and what we get is, you know, three frames of knowledge, a very small frame of knowledge, which is what is necessary? Mm. What is the a priori understanding that we can have? Um, what What is real, which is uh, like these simple statements of fact about, well, is there a amp in this room? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. there, there we have some reality, right? And that means both reality in the statement, but also a phenomenal reality that we have some type of sense of the thing. And then there's possibility, which is, in fact, the most general, right? Yes. And its generality is based on the, on, on the fact that if we can conceptualize it and if it has had some past relationship with our consciousness, then we can uh, postulate its possibility. But what's, what's really interesting about, about possibility is that it uh, essentially grounds everything. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. going back to like that idea of, the new, of Newtonian physics, right, the, the same problem uh, again comes up with him. And he, he mentions, mentions it again, um, where uh, with Newton, Newton is talking about gravitation. We cannot actually see gravitation, but he has derived these things from empirical experiments and it has made X and X measurement. So we can make these possible statements, which will come to be known as, as we talked about earlier, theoretical statements. Um, but that is what makes up the possible. So the possible is actually an extremely important part of the sort of categorizing the modal categorization of the way that we understand various concepts in the world. Right. 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 And, you know, and it's an important distinction for Kant because, um, this basically leads to probably one of the most important sections of the book, um, which thankfully is like really short and like w a lot easier to read than most of critique of pure reason, yeah. um, which is chapter three where he, uh, brings up this idea of phenomena and noumena. And so, going with this idea of possibility or conceivability, um, there are phenomena that we experience that we can say we know something about. Um, but the flip side of that is noumena, which are, are things we can conceive, but, but we don't have any, any way in which to create concepts of them, to create any like 
lasting, truthful judgment about. And so um, he calls phenomena beings of sense. So phenomena, you know, the, the word that you're familiar with will lead you to a correct interpretation where we experience phenomena in the world. We're having a conversation, right? And, and, and it's been something that we've been, uh, everything that we've been talking about has been centered around the phenomena. Right, right. Everything that is... Uh, being judged as possible or real or necessary, everything that is being perceived in time, everything that's being apprehended or uh, one thing that we didn't mention, anticipated, which is another important idea that he talks about, is a phenomenon, right? But phenomena is this more complex thing, right? Because for philosophers of the time, they were trying to talk about what was intelligible and what was unintelligible knowledge, right? The phenomenon and the nomenon, right? But he says instead that nomena ha- are problematic because if you, take, if you try to make an affirmative concept out of it, you try to say, oh, the nomena is a thing that we cannot perceive but that is there, well, there is no actual concept to talk about. It is only the emptiness of a concept, the form of a concept. While he says, if we take the negative idea of it, that it is a limit on what it is that we can know, what it is that we can perceive, then suddenly there's something useful for the idea of the nomina, right? Exactly. And this, like I said, this is this place where we can have confidence in making judgments from this place of phenomena, right? And like, you know, this harkens back to what we were talking about previously in the last episode about objects in and of themselves and how to con these are unknown things. So for me, you know, I'm, I am experiencing this phenomena of us having a conversation, um, but I can make, I can surmise, I can conceive, but I can make no judgments about what is actually going on in your head. Exactly. I, can, I can only know about what, uh, is what experience is coming at me that I'm intuiting. And so the same is true for you as it is for this water bottle, as it is for this, you know, for anything we can conceive of. Um, I, I can only know it in a subjective manner. I can never know it in the in the opposite way, in, in from a subjective matter of you or from um, a bus or whatever it is, a hawk. Right? Yes. And, 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 that, and that's another interesting question of what science can do. Can science, like, eventually understand the sensibility? Because this is something he says is impossible. We can never understand the sense of another, right? We can never understand a sense that is different than our own. But, you know, people have, uh, you know, judged what the sense of a bat or an elephant or uh, of various other things. Even Spinoza gave sense to a rock, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it brings up an important question, and he makes a very strong argument for the impossibility of that. Well, right, and Kant would, I think Kant would argue, too, like, a rock could very well have a consciousness, yes. have that, but there is no way we can make anything but an empty judgment about that. Yes. Uh, I really believe he has laid out two very important uh, sort of realms of thought that we that are, are important to consider. On the one hand, he draws out the subjective, right? And the subjective as this exactly internal thinking, as this internal sense of time, as this, you know, uh, 
linear system of causality, uh, which takes in sense, is constructed out of a priori, that is immediate concepts, and that is in constant flux and flow. But then at the same time, he creates this transcendental space, which is one of phenomena that are both cause and effects, that are both reciprocally and communally related, and that though we sense them all subjectively, that, that in their transcendental sense, sort of overcome that simple, like, first-person perspective. While we cannot know the thing in itself, we can know this sort of transcendental space in a way. Yeah, he's trying to take subjectivity and give it an objective basis, basically, yes. right? He's saying that, you know, through this tome that he's writing, okay, the only way we experience the world is subjectively. However, empirically, we all understand that you and I uh, can watch a, a rock fall from a cliff and time it and make... Um, predictions about how long it'll take to fall and that these objectively both hold true for both of us, yes. even though we're only taking in a subjective view of the world. And I think for Kant, this is, it's one of the reasons he's kind of like why we're starting with this book and why he's important because he's, he's sort of predicting a, the subjectivity and sort of affirming the subjectivity of the bourgeois subject of of of, yes. of bourgeois social relations, on one hand, um, and the atomization of capitalism and 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 this sort of reliance on subjectivity, um, on one hand, but with the other hand also um, sort of laying the groundwork for um, Simone de Beauvoir's. Uh, the second sex and the uh, subjective objective relationship of social relations. And that's starting to break down where, um, you know, we, he sort of gives the way for everyone's personal subject subjectivity to have an equal value. Well, it's, it's almost, it's almost as if, if you stretch subjectivity over the entire world, right. And you have this indifferent sort of, cold perspective on it where it is entirely formalized turned into rules and systems and the human is removed from it there's even a note in there where kant says about someone who's common he's he's communicating with about his book that rosencrantz the name of the guy suggested i put man here but that was impossible right so once he removes the human and he stretches subjectivity over everything then suddenly you get something that's very different looking than a human subject yes yeah the subject is something that's far more wide ranging and uh, far more complete and and uh, a greater transcendental knowledge than any individual would be right mm -hmm. this is describing mm -hmm. something that collectively is much greater than any any unitary individual well and that's why he's harking so much on this transcendental idea right because yes. you know obviously for kant who is this like you know very conservative lutheran i think if i recall correctly i think his father maybe was a lutheran pastor but um a very religious person nonetheless um, obviously, he's interested about these more sacred, god-like questions, but the transcendental also applies to like the oneness of humanity, of society, of humans, um, and how do you create unity out of something that is inherently singular, right? Yes. Um, and and 
and that is that is that is his charge here. That's what he's trying to figure out. You know, he's taking the skepticism of Hume and using it to self-critique everything he says, which is why he's like, I can't say, you know, uh, man here or, yeah. or spirit here. Yeah. You know, because I can't back that claim up. Yeah, and it's fascinating because uh, on the one hand, it is ex- it has a, a self-deprecating quality to it, a, a self-doubt that he's willing to challenge. But ultimately, what he's trying to build in your reference to what it potentiates, um, he's do- he has a, a sort of colonizing effect, as as I've heard you describe it before. He, he's creating this giant monument of philosophy that will first experience this explosion right in trying to replicate it and build upon it and then will that be torn down by the critique by uh, all of the uh, human qualities that complicate a philosophy without humanity um and I, and I actually think that really is it it gets to the importance of the amphiboly yes. which is th- this amphiboly last for all y'all just means ambiguity. Yeah. It's the weirdest word and it's, it, yeah. you know, screws me up every time yeah. I see it. But it, ambiguity of uh, concepts of reflection is basically right. what he's saying. But he's used this amphiboly word. Yes. And, and reflection in his usage is simply something talking about the conditions of a concept rather than talking about the concept itself. So when you reflect upon a concept, you are trying to look at what conditions created that concept, either the understanding or sense, right? And so he, he, he quickly sets up, again, four categories or four groupings, right. um, and each with two sides, right? He says, um, in my book, it is identity and difference, and yours it says sameness and difference, um, uh, agreement and opposition or agreement and conflict, the internal and external, for you, the intrinsic and extrinsic, and for both of us, matter and form, which she also says the determinable and the determination. And now these are specifically Leibnizian concepts, right, that, that uh, Leibniz used to talk about the world as if it was, as if we could actually talk about objects directly. But here what he's trying to do is show that um, – Every concept necessarily is pushed towards either our intuition and the kind of particularity of our empirical consciousness, or it's pushed towards our understanding and the kind of generality that that produces. For instance, in uh, uh, identity and difference, he he relates identity with the general and difference with the plural or the the, the singular. Um, with agreement and opposition, he. Uh, relates them to the affirmative and the negative. And right. again, as we talked about the negative earlier, the negative does not exist at all in his description of phenomena. It is only an empty concept. Um, right, because zero is lack. You know, it's yeah. this idea of nothing is nothing something. But and, but for Kant, nothing is 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 a void. And, and a he's vacuum. not sure if a void yeah. can even exist. Yes. And it certainly can't exist for our perceptions because we can't perceive nothing. Yes, and you're getting to uh, the important last point that he makes. The, uh, internal and external, he, he talks about relations and the monad, right? So uh, the monad is a particularly Leibnizian concept um, of, of where he said when you talk about a thing, you can talk about what is inside that thing or you can talk about the whole of the thing, 
that monad was that way in which a thing is self-contained right. where we put limits on it and say that is a thing that is a book that is a guitar that is a mic etc and and leibniz is fascinating in this too because you know he's not just content to say that like so i am a monad right but but that i also am made of monads yes. you know and and this is where leibniz if we ever do an episode on him will get really fascinating because it's this uh, again, these antinomies that we'll get to later in Kant, um, where something is, where both things are true but yet contradict each other, right? Yeah, but all those monads are in relation, right? And that's what the internality is, right? Yes, yeah. So we have the monads inside of us that make the greater monad, the relations of monads that make the greater monad, and then in matter, you gotta love the sexy term he chose, oh, monad, monad, <laughs> yeah. And then monads for you, baby. <laughs> And then there is matter and form, or determinable in the determination. And he makes a specific point here. For Leibniz, Leibniz always believed that matter came before form. All of these things are a relationship. All these distinctions are a relationship between content and form, or matter and form. But Kant is, says, in the case of matter, actual matter form, or the determinable and its determination, form necessarily must come before matter because the a priori right right those synthetic synthetic a priori concepts those things that determine everything we sense must come before the sense so that we can sense at all so that we can make sense of it at all exactly so if you're looking at this from the subject subjective point of view the form of your uh a priori pure knowledge is what is determining how matter appears to us. And so, you know, basically, he's trying to create a necessity here that in an almost kind of circular logic, um, you know, that, that the empirical, that objects must be real because otherwise we wouldn't have the ability to see anything. We wouldn't have these forms to conceive of them. Yes. And uh, I think that there's also a, a, another level to that, um, that he is also trying to say generally with the analytic of uh, the transcendental that all of this is positive, that all of this is something, that all of this, that all of our consciousness totally. is full. Mm -hmm. It is of time. It is of complex modality. It is, you know, filled with different rules and, and uh, uh, specificities and complications, right? But in the back of his mind, throughout the whole thing, from the point where he talks about degree zero to the point that he talks about the nomina, there is this question of the negative. What is nothing? Right, and at the very end, he uh, tries to speak about this. It is in his notes on the amph amphiboly, and he uh, has a little table, a table showing the division of the concept of nothing, the corresponding division of the concept of nothing of something follows by itself would um, would have to be arranged as follows. And he says, nothing, comma, as one, empty concept without an object. Two, empty object of a concept. Three, empty intuition without an object. Four, empty object 
without a concept, right? So it's still formal, but here he begins to conceptualize what would negative, what would negativity be? What would the re relationships of nothing be uh, outside of what we have gone through? The analytic of what is real, the analytic of what is true, and now we're getting into the problematic. Right. What he's talked about nomina. And this is the true synthetic work that he's doing, if you think about it, because, right, we, we did this whole uh, analytic of tran uh, transcendental analytic, um, but nothing isn't, is not encapsulated by anything. And so he is mediating these analytic judgments with this third concept of nothingness and trying to elucidate, to tease out um, some kind of stable ground to stand upon. And as we'll see in the next episode when we get to the transcendental dialectic, um, this is where Kant starts to change metaphysics. This yes. is when um, you know, he maybe comes closest to his goal of how do we divine how do we divine things we don't have concepts for? How do we divine things we don't have intuitions for? It is, is it even possible? Is metaphysics possible at all? And in a funny way, he starts by, by talking about nothing. Yeah. Uh, but in a, this really strong way, and, and, and I feel like nothing has this strong poetic uh, feeling to it as well, yes. right? Where it, it has a resonance in a weird way that makes this uh, contradiction very interesting. Well, right? what's so interesting about him defining nomina, that which we cannot conceptualize, that which is the limit of all that is real, right? Um, and, and going into nothing as part of the dialectic is where the kind of romance comes into him. And so he's defining it as the problematical and it as the difficult, as the thing that it, where when we even read it, we're going to see the most holes and questions and uh, about the the actual truth value of what he says but at the same time it is the first time where in philosophy people are speaking about concepts like will like uh you know um you can probably think of another nothing of course yeah various he, yeah he always mentions god uh, freedom freedom god yes. yeah uh, like these major concepts and it feel like it is grounded by something more than opinion whim uh you know some type of uh or or theologically grounded mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. it feels like it's built on something that's um more substantive. Right. And this is why we're starting here with critique of pure reason, because I think, and maybe you disagree, maybe you'd agree, but, you know, as hard as this book can be to read and as dense as it is, I think Kant is kind of the first time in philosophy where you don't feel like you're in the territory of the ancient Greeks, where it's like there's a lot of good ideas, right? Like even the ancient Greeks had conceived of atoms. Um, but there's this kind of um, naivete yes. or like clumsiness to everything. Um, and this is what Kant's doing. He's like cleaning house. He's trying to build a system, a foundation. And he, he doesn't even know if it's possible, but in which we can talk about nothing, that we can talk about freedom. Do, do we have freedom? 
Yes. I think Kant believes he does, but Kant also believes in God, and he's not sure how to deal with that either. So, yes. um, so this is what he does. He, he creates this system that acknowledges that any determination we can make is filtered through our a priori conditions of how we're even poss- able to experience it all. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that there are things, phenomena that we can know through our senses and that there are things, nomina that we can uh, conceive of, that we can, that are beings of understanding, um, but that are always outside of us. Yes. And, and uh, though, though we were not able to speak about it directly, you know, uh, that even the idea of ourselves is reliant on phenomena, that anything that is internal to us, that is a conceptual form of us that we established in that first episode, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. That, that all of that would be nothing if it were not for this external subjective world objectified by these a priori concepts, by this reciprocal schematic relationship between our immediate sense and the external world of phenomena, right? And and it creates a very powerful, very complex image, which, you know, will only get more so from here. But it, it's ex- it's an extremely exciting journey. Uh, extremely. And, uh, you know, we thank you all for um, holding on with us. I know this is a lot of dense material to get through, but um, we're at that point where, you know, we're, we're getting out of the prairie and things are about to get majestic. Yes. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, next time we're going to be talking about the transcendental dialectic and uh, even the most novice uh, scholar of philosophy will know that this is going to have wide ranging ramifications for um, the next 200 years <laughs> totally. and, and uh, immediately on all of the following uh, philosophers, it will be extremely important to the next two books, if not three books, maybe four yeah. that, that yeah. we read. And uh, it will, it will be the first time where you really start to see why all the work that Kant puts into these details, why it pays off. Right. And why we're starting with like the most hardest philosophical <laughs> book we could choose. Um, so yeah, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, make sure you smash those like and follow buttons on, uh, whether you're watching on YouTube or Spotify. Yeah. If you're, um, listening on anchor, uh, you know, uh, add, anywhere you can check us out also on patreon yeah you can uh support this project there um we're working on some some treats and tidbits for all y'all all of our uh our patreon subscribers right now so look out for that in the future um and uh we want to thank ashwin again on the faders and knobs as he got said and uh behind the camera we got matt and jake who have, who have been here and who have been part of uh, all of our projects. And we have some more stuff coming out for you. So um, thank you. Peace, y'all. Bye.